And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That I, <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch. By but oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a Geek History in Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm 43 years old. I am the father of a 10-month-old son. Uh, I am a world history teacher at the 7th grade level uh, here in California. And I cannot even think of an example this time to tell you how long I've been a geek. Because it's just been (laughs) all my life. It's like the water in which I swim. Were, were you really happy to have gotten to the age of 42? You know, a part of me was. Okay, that's um, that's the geek that you are. A little, a little yeah. bit, yeah. yeah. There, there, was, there was a part of me that was like, I can make that pun now. But yeah, yeah I, you know. That works. Yeah. Well, I'm Damien Harmony. Uh, I am also a geek. I am 40, darn near 41 years old. I have a nine-year-old, well, in three days, he will be nine. I have a nine-year-old son. Uh, who really likes playing my uh, phone mobile game of Marvel Contest of Champions. Nice. Um, and he's got so much integrity that when I say, okay, you've got six battles because you found six words on a word search or something, mm. he'll come back to me at the end of it going, well, I had my six. Wow. Like, yeah, doesn't try to push it at all. Nice job. My daughter is a six-year-old. Uh, she loves playing Dungeons and & Dragons, and she embodies what it is to be an arcane trickster uh, as, as a person. <laughs> Okay. Hundred percent. And right. she loves dragons. You know, actually, here's the geek that I am. I had my kids. Uh, they teleported out of a dungeon recently mm-hmm. in our D and D game. Yeah. Um. Uh, and and it freaked her out because she wasn't in full control of what was going on. Oh. It was kind of interesting oh. to see that play out. Yeah. And then I had them meet a golden dragon mm-hmm. behind a waterfall. Nice. So that they've played dungeons and, and uh, dragons. dragons. There you go. Uh, and then I plucked the NPC out of their thing, and she was legitimately sad okay. and, and upset. And part of it was because she realized there was their healer. <laughs> but I've, I've set up a, a, a monk who's actually an acupuncturist. Nice. So I'm going to mess nice. with uh, some nice. healing that way nice. for them. I like it. So that's, that's the kind of right. geek I am. Raising them right. Raising, I'm, raising them in the faith. Yeah. As it were. Yeah, well, the only one I will. Indeed. So, uh, I'm also a Latin teacher. Uh, that is also the geek that I am. And I, once upon Pretty a time... Geeky. Oh, very. And once upon a time, I was a, a social science teacher. I taught all the histories. So. All right. Yeah. I also worked at a place that we sold reservations to virtual reality entertainment facility uh, and adventures. And we had one game called uh, Red Planet. Where you're running around yep. on Mars in in mining, mining tunnels. That's right, yeah. and you're you're racing hover hover vehicles after hours. Yeah, and then there was a variant on that called Martian football. Yeah, where a little guy tries not to get smashed by the big guys. Yep, and, and has his own big guys to act as a blocker. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I loved doing was just oh, being yeah. a blocker. So that was a lot of fun. But I was actually a lot better at BattleTech. Yes, uh, the big giant ro- robot tanks, the walking Indeed. tanks. Yes. So. Battle Max. Yes. Yes. And that brings us, of course, to what it is that we're actually talking about today. Um, 
because this is a continuation of our last episode. Yep. Where I was uh, getting all pointy-headed about analyzing uh, the the effect of uh, Yellow Peril and uh, the American Zitgeist on who the actual bad guy was in the very first edition of BattleTech. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, of course, we have our five uh, great houses, mm-hmm. uh, the five successor states. And uh, Ooh, can I name them again? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Corita. Yep. Lau. Okay. Steiner. Yep. Davion. Yep. And Merrick. Good job. Thank you. And oddly enough, the one named Merrick was not the XP for America. Um, oh, geez, I never though, even thought of that. Even though their symbol was an eagle. Yeah, I heard actually originally um, Merrick was suggested, but the publishers didn't even listen to the decision uh, to suggest Merrick nice. as, as a house. I like it. You like that? I like it. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> well done. Yeah, but it was um, because they had bunting all around the mechs. <laughs> there were these Merrick yeah. garlands that, I like that it. were not I allowed. Like it. Didn't didn't yeah. pay any attention. Didn't yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry, that <laughs> broke me for a second. So. Um, See, you're benefiting and, yeah. from from my uh, scratchy throat. I'm on my eighth lozenge for this particular episode, <laughs> I been counting. and we're five minutes in. Yeah, um, but you're benefiting because there's so many puns that I was like, oh, I could do that, but then I will start coughing uncontrollably. So, <laughs> okay, well, I am. Yeah, because that one managed to derail me <laughs> by itself there completely. Derail gun you? Yeah, degauss you? Much, yeah, degaussed me yeah. Uh, completely. Uh, speaking of BattleTech, um, <laughs> and so anyway. Uh, you would think, based on the game being published originally in 1984 and mm-hmm. being the height of the Cold War, yep. that uh, you know the the uh, primary bad guy mm-hmm. uh, in the lore would be House Lau, which, as we right. mentioned previously, was the the XB for the Sino-Soviet uh, Union, Sino-Soviet alliance, uh, had a very had a Stalinist, right. Maoist, centralized government, had the Maskarovka secret police mm-hmm. constantly, you know, watching everybody. And you keep um, saying XP. Yeah. What is that? Oh, sorry. Uh, it's a term I'm stealing wholesale from okay. TV tropes. And XP is um, somebody's character that they've created to stand in for something else. Okay. Uh, or in another way it can be used is to talk about a copy. Yeah. So Deadpool. Uh-huh. Is a Deathstroke XP. No, I've never heard of this Deathstroke. Uh, yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah, good job. Yes, and that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's a case. That's a case where the XP is actually more entertaining than the right. original. Right. Uh, but yeah. So when when it's you like have Captain when America you, is the XP of the Sentinel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, uh, Captain Marvel, the original uh, Shazam, I should say. Yeah. Shazam. Billy Batson. Billy Batson uh, is an XP of Superman. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes you know, sense. Same kind of thing. Yeah, um, and we could go on forever, sure, sure. but that's that's how that's that's what that term is used for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the stand-in mm-hmm. in this case for the United States is House Davian. Right. The stand-in for the Soviet Union and Communist China, mm-hmm. which has never really actually been very communist, but that's a whole other conversation. Is um, House Lao, mm-hmm. the Capellan Confederation. And, you know, they consistently got portrayed mm-hmm. as being the also-ran bad guy right. behind Curita, mm-hmm. who are the XB for pre-World War II Imperial Japan. Uh-huh. And so to kind of look at why it is that the writers of the game kind of, kind of built 
things that way uh-huh. made made Karita this really threatening force while Lau was almost but not quite com- comedy relief it's important to kind of go back to what happened at the end of World War II. Okay. So after World War II, um, the short form is the Japanese busted their asses to rebuild their industrial base. Yeah. Okay, their industrial base had been completely shattered. Yeah. Uh, them and Germany. Uh, but but Japan in particular, because of, you know, the firebombing. Uh, right. The, the wide, and, the, and the widespread amount of destruction that was inflicted uh, on the Japanese homeland... In in preparation for an anticipated invasion that never happened, because right. of Fat Man and Little Boy, um, you know the the I mean it was it, the destruction was amazing and yeah. their and their economy was a complete shambles and they really um, raised their profile. Yeah, nice, nice. Yes, thank you. Yes, by lowering their profile to mm-hmm. the ground. So um, and and a lot of their efforts for a long time. Uh, you know, made in Japan was a punchline. Right. When we were when we it was were little garbage. kids, when yeah. we were little kids, if it was made in Japan, it was cheap trash. Right. You know, and it stayed a punchline up until easily up until the 1970s. One of my one of the things that you know jumped out of my subconscious when I was you know doing my research for this, thinking about these things, was a skit on the Carol Burnett show. Okay. That ended literally on the punchline "Made in Japan." Okay. Being read by Tim Conway. Mm-hmm. And Governor Hedley Lamar. Um, that's Hedy. That's Hedy. <laughs> or, yeah, I know you're talking way, about, yeah. yeah. But, um, oh, God, and I feel bad I can't remember his name. But but the two of them mm-hmm. uh, doing a send-up of a Japanese samurai movie mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, clashing swords, their swords break, and they both pick up the fragments of their swords right. and look at them, made in Japan. Harvey and Corman. They, Harvey Corman. There yeah. we go. Uh, comedic genius. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the thing is, of course, in remembering the skit, I realized that it would never get aired on TV today because racist caricatures, oh my God. Yeah, they're not good. They play, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> it's, These, I mean, this, this was, this was yellow face. Yeah. Uh, both of them with, you know, doing the whole thing. Oh, with, really? With teeth and, wow. you know, squinting. I mean, just like. Right. Wow. You know, uh, if we could, if we could find a way to go back and, and, and find that specific skit, it would really, I'm sure both mm-hmm. of us would be like, oh my God, this yeah. was on broadcast yeah. TV. Because, you know, we, we, we don't look at the world that way anymore. But so. Uh, we'll come back around. Well, we're working on it. Apparently. Well, we're going to have our own news station. <laughs> so we'll have our own entertainment station. Yeah, we'll do that again. Yeah. yeah. I bet you there's characters like that on the NRA TV. I'm. You know, I wish I could argue. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, even even while we in the West were looking at stuff that was made in Japan, uh-huh. I mean, particularly stuff that was made in the nineteen late forties into the nineteen fifties into the early sixties, you know, you see a lot of really cheap manufactured goods coming out of Japan, and this is because, <laughs> and the reason for this yeah. is because it was part of a calculated program by the Japanese government. Oh, now our government had funneled all kinds of money in oh, yeah. helping them rebuild because we were terrified that oh my god, we lost China, we can't lose anybody else. Right, lost. We need a bulwark. Lost in quotes to yeah. the communists. We need an economic bulwark again. Yeah, yeah. and and so. Uh, you know, we we gave them or forced upon them a yes. constitution in the post-war that was, in many cases, more progressive than our own. Oh, very much so. Um, and we looked the other way mm-hmm. 
while their government went and did a lot of stuff that probably might have looked a little bit oddly socialistic or mm-hmm. oddly oddly today it would be considered unfair in terms of free trade kind of stuff right um and we let them do it because if it's going to help them rebuild their industry base keep their people employed yep. and prevent them from going you know full-blown commie then so be it. we're okay with it and so this this became over time the japanese miracle Okay. That they went from a completely shattered industrial base mm-hmm. to where they got to, which we're going to talk about. Which was in, in, in short <clears throat> order, too. I mean, yeah, we're talking in, in, within 10 years, they're exporting stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, a fun, fun little thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the metal that they got was from GI mess kits that yes. were litter. Yeah. That were, that were, yeah. And I mean, that, you that know, they turned the them into toys, but also. Yeah. That's why they had cheap items cheap, was cheap because they yeah, were was, literally using pot metal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um and so the the Japanese government established MITI, M I T I, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. Okay. okay. And this became the powerhouse power behind the throne if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. This this was the industry that that held all the strings for the rest of the government because okay. they gave it all of this power because they needed to get their industrial base back. Okay. And so MIDI coordinated and exerted all kinds of control over development of manufacturing and tech industries in post-war Japan. They provided government financing. They directed policy of the overall government to support research and development. They enacted protections for Japanese manufacturing. They created tariffs. They you know, mm-hmm. did subsidies. They All this kind of stuff. Did they model themselves after anything? Because it sounds a lot like the European coal and steel community. Yes, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that I'm sure that was part of what they looked at. Okay, yeah. it's like Marshall Plan Far East. Yes, you know. Yes, very much. Uh, by 1980, so war ends in 45. Right. Uh, 35 years later, in 1980, Japan had become the world's largest exporter of automobiles. They surpassed the Germans and then the U.S. I just in I'm 35 years. Wow. Okay. And, but and, I'm getting ahead of myself by saying that because we got more steps to talk about. But you need to understand that's where they ended up, right? With this program, with in in less than two generations, yeah. just barely one, right? I, I'm just I'm I'm thinking 1980 is almost 19 years ago or 39 years ago from yeah. us, so we are further from 1980 than World War II was. Yes. That just blows my mind. A like, little bit, yeah. I, I read a thing about you know how Cleopatra mm-hmm. is closer to the moon landing than she, than is, she to is to the, the pyramids. To the beginning of pyramids. Yeah. Um, or that uh, Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were born on the same day. Or no, we're born the same year. Same year. You know, yeah. Stuff like that. Just little things. Yeah. You're just like, little, like wait, wait. That's wait, a thing. Wait. Or you get reminded that uh, you know the little girls who uh, were involved in the Little Rock. Uh, school. I thought you were going to make a issues. Shining reference. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, yeah. that movie messed me up. I, I wouldn't do that. But, uh, you know, the, the girls that were involved in, in opening up the schools in Little Rock yeah, the are Little Rock still Nine. alive. Yeah. And they're not that old. Right. Well, that it's, one's, that one's, look how quickly we solved racism. Yeah. I mean, really, that's well, that's go. the lesson there. That's, that's applause. You know. There yes. you go for us. So... They went from, like, people went from having to, like, refuse to get off a bus yeah. to forced busing. I mean, yeah, it's perfect. Problem solved. There you go, yeah. All done. Um, so, 
again, uh-huh. the the industrial base has been. I mean, I I can't restate enough right. how badly Japan's industrial base was, oh, it was completely wrecked. Yeah, um, because and, it was all geared toward the war machine, yeah, it, and, and that's one of the things that we bombed the shit out of was yeah. the war machine industry. Yeah, like, everything yeah. everything that was supporting the logistics of the Imperial Japanese Navy, right. the Imperial Japanese Army. Like if we viable out, targets, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, and so um, the the first thing, one of the first things they did, they recruited women uh, to join the labor force to make up for the losses of men in the war. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, I remember that happening after the Black Plague. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Meaty again. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, the first phase of uh-huh. they, they they came up with they had a plan. And the first phase of their plan was they focused on raw materials production for the first few years in order okay. to set the stage for further advancement. Then they worked with the Keiretsu to coordinate development across the country. Now, I can see the look on your face. You're, mm-hmm. you're about to ask me, Ed, what are the Keiretsu? <laughs> that was another question I had, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, what was the other one you had? So uh, before, just I, before I get into the vocabulary part Sounds an awful lot like socialism. Uh, very much. You know, yes. uh, state-run... Yes. Control of the industries. Yeah. And makes perfect sense when you're trying to recover from an economic downturn. Yeah. Um, just going to put that out there. That Seeing if I'm, anybody might be listening anywhere yeah. out in the ether. Also just wondering, did they have socialized medicine? Did they figure that out? You know what? I didn't touch on that oh. in my research. That would be interesting, It'd be interesting to find look out. up and add yeah. as an addendum to this. Um, but the Keiretsu, mm-hmm. here's the thing. This, and, and the thing that prevents this from being... The kind of thing that, you know, right-wing pundits would go, oh my god, socialism, mm-hmm. is that Keiretsu are uh, business groups with interlocking ownership. Oh, okay. so it's a trust. So this, so this is a trust. Uh-huh. Um, and Keiretsu, uh, it is the, the Keiretsu were the evolution of the pre-war Zaibatsu. Now, a Zaibatsu, mm-hmm. which you may have, in, in the course of gaming, you may have been exposed somewhere... To you know the the corporate overlord. If you've done any any kind of cyberpunk anything, you've heard of you know the Japanese zaibatsu and you know the corporate overlords and all that right, kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, what a zaibatsu was historically, it was an actual term for anybody okay. who's not familiar with that fact. But the zaibatsu were vertically integrated industrial giants. Okay, they were, okay. They were vertically integrated uh, groups of companies. Okay. Uh, that were controlled at the top by a single family. Okay, so the, so the the zaibatsu would ultimately be owned by a family. Okay. okay. Now what happened was, and in the in the post war period, we came in mm-hmm. the United States and said, uh, you know, the zaibatsu and the pow- the corporate power of the zaibatsu was part of what was the driving force behind the Black Dragon Society. The militarism that led up to, you know, them making the tripartite pact, you know, the Axis Alliance with mm-hmm. Germany and all that stuff. And so the Zaibatsu got broken up. Okay. And then the Japanese government said, okay, but we need to find a way to coordinate efforts across industries. Right. We don't have the Zaibatsu anymore, so we're going to have these corporations interlock their ownership so they have board memberships that overlap Mm-hmm. And and this is a horizontal integration. Okay. 
where there's no single family controlling everything. It's not, you know, a single it's not a stovepipe. Right. It's it's horizontal integration. Okay. Uh, so in a Keiretsu, you'd have manufacturing companies, services companies, materials companies, and finance companies oh. all working together, all building building synergy right. to use a you know uh, business business administration major right term, uh, working together in a coordinated manner okay so that way whoever their contact was with the government could the government could say okay look this is our government goal this is what we need to do and right. then that would become part of their corporate goal and the deal is it's not socialism because everybody's making bank right okay, okay. so so it's not it's not control uh-huh. but it is very significant coordination uh-huh. between the government and industry okay okay um and so this is also the point at which japanese companies undertook the practice of guaranteed life and lifetime employment okay uh in japanese shushin koyo and i know i'm probably butchering the pronunciation sure. but i'm trying and it's also worth noting that we have, you know, these Keiretsu that are all the companies are in or the ownership is interlocked. They're all uh-huh. kind of tied together. They're all working together as one unit. They're all, you know, following, you know, the policy guidelines that they're getting notified of by the government. Uh-huh. And the workforce is highly and rigidly unionized. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now. <laughs> I can see why America is looking the other way. <laughs> God forbid we actually go, ah, eh, it might work. Yeah. Um, now, here's now when is when is that? When is that? Because this this is 40, 46, 47 is when this gets okay. started. Okay. Okay. Now this this continues up this is, through this is what decades. This is what Wallace wanted, by the way. The guy who ran for president and lost a few times, not the racist Wallace. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the good Wallace. Yeah. What he wanted was this. I yeah. You're yeah. not wrong. Yeah. You're entirely not wrong. And so um, now. In my notes, what I have in parentheses, reflection on Confucian values and their reflection in these kinds of policies. Well, Confucius how, how is Chinese, so okay, well, why are we... Uh, okay. How, how familiar are you with Confucianism? Um, oh, it's been a long time since I've taught uh, 10th graders, okay. uh, much less 7th graders. So mm-hmm. let me... I, I spend a lot of time telling 7th <laughs> graders about Confucianism. Let me, let me see if I can uh, capsulize okay. it. Just a bit. Okay. Um, you essentially have a civic duty um, okay. toward excellence, uh, and it's tied directly to your family. Okay. And you have a part to play. Okay. You are a cog, um, and and your job is to do the best you can to play that cog to keep everything working well. Okay. And there's a lot of tradition and a lot of things that are used to reinforce that. Okay. That's a really good executive summary. Mm-hmm. Um, the only the only couple of things that I would add mm-hmm. are, uh, number one, Confucianism did, as you point out, start in China. Mm-hmm. But it wound up getting carried all over East Asia. Mm-hmm. There is not an East Asian culture today okay. that is not on some level to mm-hmm. a greater or lesser degree influenced by Confucianism. Okay. Um, and, you know, you look at the stereotype we have of Asians as a model minority in our country. Sure. And I can point out to you exactly where it is that that is a direct result of them coming Confucian. from Confucian culture. Um, 
the the things about Confucianism I want to point out are you do a very you did a very good job talking about you know as the as the person on the low end of the totem pole what what your role is right well because I'm me yeah, I'm well, the yeah, person on the low end of the your, totem pole that's your that's yeah. your take but but what's what's important to note is the teachings of Confucius were that there is a responsibility from below to above to to show deference and respect and uh-huh. obedience. And there is a necessity mm-hmm. from above to below to show paternalistic care. Noblesse oblige. Noblesse, like in the West, we have noblesse oblige. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, noblesse oblige is like, you know, you, you, ought to, you ought to treat these people well. You have a responsibility to protect these people. Right. You, no, no, no. Confucianism takes noblesse oblige and like pumps it full of whatever the drugs are that Bane takes. Okay. <laughs> it is, no, no. You are responsible for them. These are your people. These are your people. Gotcha. And, if, and if you are the ruler, mm-hmm. you are responsible for everybody. And and your your good behavior, your bad behavior, your virtue or lack mm-hmm. thereof. Your Jin Lee. Yes, yes, Jin and Lee. And I, I have a lot of fun teaching about Jin uh, and Lee to my to my students because I use the example of. A friend of mine whom you haven't met who mm-hmm. has all the Jun in the world and no Lee. <laughs> like no Lee at all. Um, but anyway, it's still sure, sure. the time. Um, <clears throat> but you know, your 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 embodiment of those two virtues right. is what literally keeps the universe running or not. Okay. And if you screw it up, the heavens We'll will, crack open. will punish everybody yeah. and there will be floods and all this and the other thing. The Yalu River will change it, course. Yeah, and yeah. everything everything will fall apart. And and so this idea of lifetime employment mm-hmm. is about as Confucian as you can get. Oh, yeah. It is, it is, no, here's the deal. You know, I don't think they had socialized medicine because here's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Part of the deal was, as your employer, mm-hmm. we're going to provide you with health insurance. Oh. Because we are responsible right. for you. Right. You give us your loyalty and your drive and your work and you kill yourself for the company, which mm-hmm. would happen. Uh, you know, death by overwork is a peculiarly Japanese <laughs> cultural sure. thing that has a word for it that I don't have in front of me. Um, but, you know, you you give us that and mm-hmm. we will we will take care of you. So, you, know, you know, from the time you graduate from right. whatever preparatory high school you went to to start, you know, working in a factory from that day until the day you are cremated mm-hmm. in a Buddhist funeral. Right. We're. That was actually we going to be my next question is then where's the incentive or need for any higher education? Um. Because I remember reading that like higher education still happened, but it was mm-hmm. a cultural norm. And after you got your degree, then you went to work in whatever the factory was that you were going to work in for the rest of your the, life. The the Japanese and, and anybody who's watched a lot of anime can can tell you mm-hmm. kind of at a bizarre twisted remove because anime is itself a bizarre <laughs> art form. But um, a bizarre you know, art form. Yeah, one of the. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but. Yeah, uh, from a Western perspective, it's fucking weird. Um, but you know what? What you see is this uh, view within within the culture that creates these these shows uh-huh. as anime 
is this view of high school as being, you know, the pressure cooker. And right. here, here in the United States, everybody looks back on high school as like, well, you know, when I was a kid and it either sucked right. or it really didn't, it was my glory days, whatever. And then the time when you really get stressed out about finals, you really get stressed out about everything is when you go to college because you're spending a lot of money to go to college. You got all this pressure right. on you. And if you screw it up, it's going to ruin your life. That's, that's junior high into high school For the in Japanese. Japan. Gotcha. And so higher education in that system, which again is very heavily Confucian and yep. very heavily regimented and there's still to this day uh, a lot more uh, emphasis on you know rote memorization and mm-hmm. facts, figures, and all that kind of stuff. Because of those cultural norms, right? The um, nail that stands out gets gets hammered. Gets, gets hammered down. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so if you're going to go on to get an advanced degree, mm-hmm. your teachers have noticed that you have the potential to go on to get that advanced degree, and okay. you have been pointed in the direction of taking the tests to get into the pre-college high school, sure. and then you're going to take the tests to get into university, sure. and so that's that's kind of how that works. Okay. And so if you wind up getting that kind of degree, you're going to go into that kind, you're then going to get interviewed for and get into that kind of position within right, a right. company okay. or doing whatever. So that's... Kind of how that works. Okay. Um, and so. So they guarantee lifetime employment. Yeah. And 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 the unions. Mm-hmm. We we in the West, you and I, yes. specifically <laughs> as union reps at our respective sites, are used to the idea that our relationship with management is of necessity going to be confrontational. Yeah, there will okay, be a not, level of adversarial. Not, not, not necessarily, well, not necessarily adversarial, but always, mm-hmm. look, we have a problem. I need right. to talk to you about it. We need to find a solution to the problem right now. Right. Whereas in this Confucian model mm-hmm. or Confucian inflected model, mm-hmm. the relationship is much more one of everybody coming to the table with this go along to get along, figure out how we're going to make this work kind of attitude. And I don't want to say that unions necessarily collaborated with management, but management and unions worked together more more symbiotically mm-hmm. to make sure that, like, from the CEO at the top of the company to the worker down at the very bottom, everybody understood this is the goal the company is working toward. This is what we're all going to do to reach that goal. Mm-hmm. And this is what... Management is going to do to take care of the workers, and this is what the workers are going to do to give their most for the company. Okay, and and because everybody had been raised in in that kind of mindset, right? It's a it's it's just a very different kind of attitude and different kind of relationship between the unions and management that I think you and I would look at and be you know kind of like the dog in the RCA. What? <laughs> oh, it's way weird. Well, okay, so that uh, that sounds, by the way, like the best post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> yeah, because it is. Yeah. Japan was post-apocalyptic. They oh, yeah. literally oh, had they literally the only had. nuclear holocaust there was. Yeah, and all the firebombing, and then their solution was come together. And and what I get a kick out of there, and again, this is you know me, the union guy. You know, I I know about the Haymarket affair. I know like yeah. all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, and and it just like. It's only ever been confrontational and adversarial yeah. in America because, well, because we inherited yeah 
exactly from, from Europe and Great Britain, where we had um, you know the earliest the earliest capital investments were being made by people who had made all of their money by owning all of the land, right, and controlling it because they were yeah. the ones who could afford armor and horses and swords, <laughs> right, you know. through violence. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so that was that was the core of all of it. Now, we literally have a bloody history yeah. with unions, yeah. trying to stand up for the workers and being shot by the army or the police, which or were their own union or, or both. Thing. Or hired or by, Pinkertons, or, by, or, by, or, or hired Pinkertons, yeah. or you know, in the case of uh, the Haymarket affair, yeah. uh, you know, a semi-private pseudo militia, right? Of you yeah. know, cavalry who had wanted to serve on the continent fighting Napoleon, but you know, been 4-H'd <laughs> because oh my god, you're psycho, right? Like Sorry. basically, uh, yeah. shitty Hessians, yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we inherited I like, that. I like that. I like that. Um, Japan, because you had. An apocalypse. They had a hard reset. They got to rebuild in the way that made sense to them. Yeah. Which is this, you know, the same thing that happened in Europe in a lot of countries was our entire city's been bombed all to shit. Maybe the church doesn't have to be the center of this city anymore. Maybe we could put things on a grid. Maybe we can, you know. And I love how you bring architecture <laughs> history into it. But yeah. But, yeah. so like Japan yeah. also gets, so really yeah. everyone else is welcome. Um, America, we're still behind because no one really bombed us. I guess yeah. is yeah. really yeah, yeah. It's it's that it's that whole you know <laughs> coming coming out of the war, we became the dominant power, but there were a lot of things that we didn't get to do because we didn't have to do we didn't have to do them. Yeah, and so it was easier not to do them. Yeah, yeah, and just keep yeah. building on top of yeah. shitty cardboard. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> for your foundation. For, yeah. But okay, so Japan so, has its ultimate post-apocalypse, yeah, yeah, and, and it actually is yeah, idyllic. And, yeah, well, well, not idyllic. Idyllic but, might be overstating things, yeah. but because um, there was, you know, a certain a certain uh, constrictive amount of you know government control of of freedom of expression and a lot of stuff, which was not no, new. Which was not no, not at all. So new. it's it not was, yeah, and, it's not shock to the, the post, system. And in the post-war period, it was a lot less restrictive than it had been in the pre-war period. So it felt like a relaxing. It felt like yeah, yeah. it felt like oh my god, we have so much freedom. Yeah, and you know, to an American at the same time, it had been like oh my god, you live in a rat warren and you're yeah. constant wow, you know, um, and and to most Americans, Confucian ideals just seem like. That's like collectivist. What? That's bizarre. Right. Who are you people? <laughs> right. Um, and and what I what I want to reiterate, kind of before I go on, is you know talking about you know feudal lords controlling all the land and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The people who had founded the Saibatsu were the descendants of the Japanese version of that same uh, thing. Yeah. You know, and and so what what you say about the war, you know, giving it an opportunity for a hard reset is is definitely very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Um, you know this this whole Confucian idea of looking after your workers and all that stuff had been there uh-huh. before, but but this is where the government really bought into it as okay, no look, we need everybody on board, we right? Need everybody working toward this common goal, and so we've really got to make sure uh-huh. that workers are taken care of, you know, um, and and you know it brings to mind you know cartoons I remember seeing that were made in the 1950s and 1960s here in the United States uh-huh. talking about you know capitalism and the way you know capitalism is this great system because right. because labor and management recognize right they don't say need to recognize in the cartoons right. they say recognize because it's propaganda that you know 
you know, we, we make the profit, we reinvest part of the profit in building up the business. We, we make sure that, you know, our workers are that looked after. Employed. And everybody's, yeah. And it keeps people employed. And, you know, that keeps wages going up as time. We can afford to pay people more. Right. So wages go up and we continue making money and all this. And, and there was this wonderful period immediately post-war. Right. And for, I don't know, 20 years or so afterward... I think up until the 80s, I'm going I'm to say it's up until the 80s, where, you know, um, corporate America recognized that it needed labor to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was before, you know, uh, uh, stock market people mm-hmm. um, focused on quarterly profits above everything else. You mentioned that you know, there, and, and so there, there was this. I mean, there was uh-huh. this period where you know what's good for what's good for Detroit GM. is good for America, right? And and for twenty years, mm-hmm. you know, the standard of living continued going up. Yep. You know, union participation was at an all time high. I mean, all this yeah. stuff was awesome, and we were, you know, on top of the world because of it. And and then somehow, mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, that changed. And so my my grandfather. Both of two of my grandfathers. I had nine grandparents when I started in this world. Mm-hmm. I'm down to three. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my one of my grandpas uh, who lived in Michigan. I had two of them lived in Michigan. Uh, my biological grandfathers. One of them uh, told me. He said the the last good year for the American worker was 1966. Okay. I said, why is that? He said, um, because in 1966 was the last year that I was able to get into a country club without getting priced out. And he said that the people who ran the country club said, what's the point of having all this money if I have to golf and be stuck behind a quartet of guys that include my mechanic? And the next year he was priced out. Interestingly, also, GM starts every meeting prior to that year i want to say it's prior to that year every meeting how are we going to make a better car how are we going to make a better car and they never ever talked about quarterly profits or how much money the company was making it was about focusing on the car and then that year and i i might be wrong i might be conflating the two but that year in that same period right in that same period they started talking about their profits not building the car okay and so you say into the 80s, I say, okay, but that's as yeah, it was declining. Decline, the decline because starts. Yeah, it yeah. starts in 60s. So it's a yeah. s- slow and steady decline. Yeah. Okay. You know, like like the Ottoman Empire didn't end in 1918. Yeah. yeah. It was it, ending it was, for 300 yeah. years. But, but you, know, you know, its head was finally cut off right. in 1918. Right. Yeah. The Roman Empire didn't actually, the Western Roman Empire didn't actually fall in 476. Right. That was just when Romulus Augustulus yeah. was, you know, murdered. And, it was, it was. And nobody, it was, nobody bothered to take the job. <laughs> 300 years. Yeah. Um, so, so, as I was saying, mm-hmm. um, we have this this very different system that the Japanese wind up putting together from yes. from the way our whole concept of things works in the United States at the time, and so Midi, with this whole mm-hmm. Keiretsu system as the background, aggressively encouraged export from the fifties onward. Mm-hmm. They relaxed monopoly regulations, and they freed up government money uh, to make capitalization easy for industrial companies. Okay. So if you ran a manufacturing business that was going to be exporting anything anywhere, mm-hmm. you could go to the government and go, hey, 
I want to make tractors and sell them to the Australians. Mm-hmm. And the government would be like, let's make it rain for you. Okay. Okay. They, so the, the whole effort from the top down was intensely managed. And it resulted in a massive economic growth and prosperity in Japan by the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an upward curve that carried forward through the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And now, no. we get, now, <laughs> we get, now we get to talking about GM and uh-huh. how do we build a better car and Versus, that. yeah, let's make profit. During the oil crises of 73 and 79, mm-hmm. the Japanese had an automatic leg up. Not because they had said, we're, we're going to do this in order to get one over on the West. Right, but because they built automatic because, transitions. But because, well, automatic transmissions was part of it. Part of it was also, um, they just built smaller cars anyway to okay. begin with. Okay. Because Japan's an island country. You need smaller and cars. You need smaller cars. Yeah. And the people they were selling cars to were buying smaller cars. Uh-huh. And so when the gas crises hit, mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden, well, okay, I could buy a Detroit battleship, <laughs> you know. Right, which, a land yacht. You know, a land yacht. Mm-hmm. I prefer battleship. But yes, land yacht works too. 100 I square could, feet. I could, I could buy a Cadillac Phaeton, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, float everywhere I want to go. Or um, I can buy this little Japanese box that, yeah, okay, my neighbors are going to laugh at me, but they'll not be laughing when, you know, I'm able to keep driving and they can't because I still have gas in the tank. Right. And so um, (coughs) suddenly Mm -hmm. this meant that they had a huge advantage over Detroit Steel in the marketplace. And like I said, by 1979, Mm -hmm. they had passed the Germans and then they had passed us. Uh-huh. And in 1979, they exported more vehicles to the rest of the world than anybody else. Now, again, this is 1979. 1979. 34 years yeah. after the war. After they were nothing. Like, yes. they were just rubble. Mm. So, like, we're looking at them exporting all these cars, and we're like, that soon? Yeah. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Nice, Anne. Nice. Done. Nissan? Nissan. Yeah. Um, so... Suddenly, mm-hmm. um, we see yellow peril here in the U.S. We, we we start we start seeing this suspicion and this like, hey, wait a minute, what uh-huh. are these? What are these? What are these? You know, funny looking foreigners? You know, up to they're they're a threat now. Oh, okay. Okay. And now Japan is, has no military at this Japan, point. They, well, Japan they have has like a self defense force, right? Yeah, and it's self defense force, but it's basically but, but, we've got it. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we're 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 the ones defending them yeah. from you know everybody effectively, and so um, American CEOs start screaming about unfair Japanese business practices because remember mm-hmm. they've relaxed all these monopoly things and they're right. just they're just like throwing money almost doesn't sound like the right verb to use. I want, uh-huh. I want to give something that, like launching that gives money? an idea of, of like opening up a fire hose to right. just spray money. Right. But spray doesn't give an idea of the volume. I'm like, like think right. of just, yeah, like so they're pumping uh-huh. so much money into their industry. And of course, that's, that's the subsidies that we give our industries at this time don't mm-hmm. don't work anywhere near that way. Right. And it's not anywhere near on that scale as a part of GDP, because of course our GDP is still massively huger than yeah. Japan's. But you know, um, 
so so American CEOs start screaming about unfair Japanese business practices. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into talking specifically about Lee Iacocca for a moment. <laughs> because, because oh my God, that's my what is favorite. my Lee Iacocca. That, that's what is my Iacocca, to quote Berkeley <laughs> Brethren. Um, my favorite ahead. quote of his still is, we need to think about how much fresh air we really need. Yeah. Like, he yeah. said that what a, what a, out loud. He's, he's um, oh, now I can't remember the other person I'm thinking of. Um, but yeah, he he's, <laughs> he he really is the the uh, sage of, mm-hmm. of dumb CEO remarks. Uh, but <laughs> he he got up in front of Congress, mm-hmm. and in '79, of course, is when uh, uh, GM mm-hmm. needed to be bailed out. And he got up in front of the Congress, first time, the first time, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he got up in in front of Congress, and he basically blamed. All of GM's problems mm-hmm. on competition from the Japanese and how the Japanese isn't that capitalism? Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> but but he again, you know, they're operating in this in this environment where their the government giving them all their cooking their books, yeah, and cooking okay. their books, doing all this stuff. <laughs> and and one of the things he said in in a book in, in one of his one of his you know blowhard you know. Autobiography. Trump, things. my time at the top. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember the title of Lee Iacocca's one, but yeah. <laughs> uh, he he accused the Japanese of exporting unemployment. <laughs> and I, and I, want, I, want, I want everybody to think about that for a second. Because, because uh, I'm a fan of, of or I, I have, for a long time I've been. I no longer agree with him the way I used to, but I'm a, I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of P.J. O'Rourke. Okay. Uh, a, a humorist and, and author who um, uh, wrote about Iac- he wrote a review of Iacocca's book mm-hmm. and his question was how do they package it? Does it spoil? <laughs> how exactly do you export unemployment? <laughs> and, and, and you know P.J. O'Rourke is really good for that kind of stuff yeah, he really and, is you know, like like, wait, hold on, you know, and and so Ayakoka just laid let just just laid all the blame mm-hmm. at the feet of of Japan. Okay, and you know, completely, completely like not even mentioning overexpansion, the fact that they'd stopped caring about making a good car, mm-hmm. <coughs> rising fuel costs, and the fact that the American industry had just said, "No, no, we're we're Americans want to buy big big cars. We're going to keep making big cars," uh-huh. you know, and continuing to make gigantic land cruisers. Right. You know, um, I mean, not literally land cruisers because that's a Toyota. Right. But <laughs> uh, but you know, answering the gigantic. American need for large cars. Yeah, you know, and and not not looking at the fact that in the late seventies into the early eighties, everybody was buying smaller cars mm-hmm. because. People were starting to feel the pinch of higher gas prices for the right. first time, and and so at the same time that's going on, 1979, mm-hmm. Buck Rogers in the 25th century mm-hmm. aired on NBC, with the villains being the Draco Empire, a heavily Asian themed antagonist with really strong Japanese elements in their aesthetics. Wait, was this the one that I grew up watching? I was I watching like Aaron, reruns. Aaron Gray, Aaron Gray, and, and, and Gil Gerard. Gil Gerard, yeah. And Beedy 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 Buck. Yep. Uh, Wait, did they like Twinkie. cancel it and then Twinkie. come back with it later? No, or it, ran, it ran for several years. And oh, it did. In, okay. And it was in syndication. Okay. 
Yeah, and wow. so it was the same one we we both grew up on, and okay. it was partly yeah. responsible for my own sexual awakening. Okay, because uh, Aaron Gray in in those mylar, not mylar, mylar, <laughs> whatever it was, jumpsuits she was wearing. Yeah, yeah, God knows. On some episodes, it was definitely naga hide, made to look like you know whatever exotic animal hide it was supposed mm. to be. And back then, the naga ran free. Yes, they really yeah. weren't endangered. You know, the herds so of yes, naga they were just on the plane. They would sunburn them, so you yes. get red naga hide. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. <laughs> the so, natural, the natural predator of the snipe, actually. I, yeah, strangely I like enough, it. I like it. perfect. So now that's a continuation, uh-huh. or or a revivification mm-hmm. of the Yellow Peril uh, that was part of the original comics of the 1930s, right. Buck Rogers, mm-hmm. in which the Air Lords of the Han were the antagonists. Chinese now, yeah. Now this time, of course, is coded to be Japanese rather than Chinese mm-hmm. because. And this is something that a, that a history professor of mine pointed out in college that I had never thought about. But if you look at our relationship mm-hmm. in the West, and, and in the United States in particular, to Eastern Asia, mm-hmm. when we like Japan, we, don't we like China. distrust China. Yep. And when we distrust China, we really like the Japanese. There was a book that we gave to GIs in World War II. And forgive the language, um, it was how to tell a, jink, a chink from a jab. It yeah. was called that. The yeah. Department of Defense put it out. And what was interesting, because I've, I've looked at this, I've lectured on this. Oh, wow. What was interesting to me was if you'd rewound it by about 30 years, you would have had how they thought about the Chinese instead of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just very easy, yeah. flippy floppy. Yeah. Um, and and I'm sure somewhere there's a parallel in the same time period in wrestling. There has to be. Oh yeah. Are I'm you, you sure. kidding me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's um yeah. yeah. Let me think. In the 1980s, you had Tiger Chung Lee, who was a Korean, mm-hmm. but in in wrestling, you didn't really no. But to that. in the 70s, you did have Mr. Fuji, Mr. Saito. You had a lot of Japanese wrestlers actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, devious, mm. always very devious, always, always sneaky. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> and and you know the Japanese economic growth mm-hmm. that was going on continued through the whole decade, and and we had this weird obsession terror relationship, uh-huh. and, and it was they were they were threatening mm-hmm. and they were scary, but they were also really cool, right. And like we didn't really know what to what to do about that, and and so this filtered through like all of the science fiction of like the whole decade of, yeah. of the nineteen eighties. Buckaroo Banzai had like a rising sun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Buckaroo. Yeah. Like wait, he's he's as white as you can get. I right. Mean, I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't remember the actors. Uh, Weller. Peter Weller. Peter Weller. Peter Weller. Wait. No. I'm going to laugh if that was him, because Peter Weller also played Robocop. Yeah, he did. So. And off the top of my head, I think it was Peter Weller. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know, one of the most... It German, was Peter Weller. One of the most Germanic-looking white guys <laughs> you can imagine with yes. a name like Buckaroo Banza. Like, right. You know, and that, that that's a great... That's one... I hadn't even thought of that, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um and so we, we have these whole all of these depictions of, of mega cities covered in Japanese script, right? You know, and neon signs and kanji and and you know Blade uh, Runner, Blade, yeah, yeah. That's actually, one of the most iconic examples, right? And then that got 
copy pasted oh, into yeah. every cyberpunk anything anywhere for right. 20, 20 years <laughs> or more. Uh, you know, you see Zaibatsu showing up as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Shadowrun mm-hmm. is like the Zaibatsu are the bad guy. Right. Like in all of the original stuff that was published. You know, that's, right. that's who the bad guy is. Songs. Are. There's Domo Arigato, Mr. Mr. Roboto. Um, I think I'm turning which, Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I really that, think that so. Has, that has <laughs> an awful lot to do more with masturbation references than anything else well, but it that. still mentions and and they use it still makes use of even the song yeah. dare to be stupid by weird al has a very japanese sounding beginning part dun, 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 yeah dun, dun, dun. yeah that that chord progression that we yeah. associate with with somehow chinese east asian chinese japanese right stuff yeah um and so i remember oh in, and we had the gong show yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you stretched it with that one. But Very yeah. much so. Yeah. And and so I remember in college uh-huh. being handed a you know ripping yarn style mm-hmm. you know, science fiction far future, and it would involve giant robots, but it was not BattleTech related at all. But it uh-huh. was it was it was a future in which um, the Japanese Empire had been reborn through corporate power. <laughs> and and the Zaibatsu had eventually just morphed into no seriously we have an emperor and you know everything that they're they're the ones that run everything our protagonist right. was clearly descended from Americans but you know he served a Japanese style military mm-hmm. you know with all of the officers having Japanese titles and all this stuff and and so mm-hmm. that was that was the dread and that was that was the the vision of the future was mm-hmm. that this this wave of this other culture they're winning a tsunami and, and they're yes they're coming like a tsunami and we're all going to be washed under by uh-huh. it and you know picked up and carried along and so you know like i said this is this combination of fear and curiosity and even desire and admiration uh-huh and in 1980 the Shogun miniseries. Mm, that's right. Came out on TV. James Clavell's novel, uh-huh. doorstopper of a novel, uh, was shown on broadcast TV in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the first American-made film mm-hmm. involving Japanese characters mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. which they were all played by Japanese actors. Oh, wow. Okay. Which was a huge deal. Yeah. Because you know, prior to that, if you were a Japanese actor, you were on MASH. Yeah. Playing a, playing a Korean or a Chinese or a Chinese officer, Chinese off, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't just you know white people in yellow face, right? It was actual Japanese actors, many of whom, of course, were you know Toshiro Mifune, of course, is uh-huh. the you know archetypal legendary one that everybody will recognize his name, and he sure. played the principal, not really antagonist. It's a complicated book, but right. he he played the XB for Tokugawa Ieyasu mm-hmm. in, in that series and was, I mean, he's Toshiro Mifune. Uh, yeah. Akira Kurosawa said the reason he loved working with Toshiro Mifune was because uh, it, with another actor, he would need to take uh, uh, 90 seconds of film. With Toshiro Mifune, he only needed to take 30 because Toshiro Mifune was just that emotive and intense. And, oh, so and interesting. he was just able to express... Okay. So much, so so fast. Okay, yeah. Um, and there was a couple of years. <laughs> I'm I'm a massive Japanese film nut, and uh-huh. so a few years ago, 
uh, in the process of trying to find a new apartment with a couple of friends, we, we reached a setback. We hit a setback, and I, I replaced my, my Facebook photo with a photo of Toshiro Mifune from The Seven Samurai. <laughs> and I said, no, no, we're going to get Toshiro Mifune on this. We're going to, you know, and I, and, I, and I took the Chuck Norris meme about you know, Chuck Norris once broke the world land speed record the bicycle right. missing its rear wheel, you know. And I turned it into Toshiro Mifune, you know. Um, and I, I can't can't quote any of them, but anyway, Toshiro yeah. Mifune is is a fucking legend. He's amazing, and, you know. And so that was that for a lot of people outside of watching samurai movies. For uh-huh. anybody who wasn't a samurai movie nerd, right? That was the first time they'd seen him. And so this this was a huge cinematic kind of deal. It was a big, miniseries, and those yeah. were really big back then. They were miniseries huge. were huge. They were big, like once were Roots hit, birds, Roots, yeah, all of them. Yeah, we're we're a big we're a big event. And so um, this is also the point you mentioned in mm-hmm. our last episode. And I said, dude, damn it, you're taking all my stuff. <laughs> this is also when we have the flood of ninja movies. Yes. So many garbage ninja movies. Yes. Like, like oh my God, so crappy ninja movies. And, and the central conceit of so many of them was a white guy yes. becoming a master ninja. And, and the, Michael Dudikoff. Is Michael, possessed. Michael Dudikoff has a possessed sword. Has a possessed Michael sword. Dudikoff's Michael Dudikoff's girlfriend. It's always Michael is, Dudikoff. Yeah. It's it's and you know yeah. nothing against Michael Dudikoff, but could you could you give that to somebody who maybe followed fight choreography <laughs> a little bit better? Maybe was a a, maybe was a bit less wooden as an actor. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, speaking of better actors, of course, the peak to me, mm-hmm. the peak of. Ninja movie, bad American ninja, everything would have to be the TV series The Master. You remember that one? Not off it, it top, didn't, but it I would, bet I it will. Would, it, I would be, I would not be surprised either way. Okay. Lee Van Cleef played okay. the wise old uh-huh. white guy who had somehow become a master ninja, um, and and so bad. So bad nice. on so many levels because they had to introduce, you know, the younger character who's his sidekick who becomes his student. Uh-huh. And it's like every time they, they have, you know, the final thing they've got to do and use ninja skills to do, Lee Van Cleef is in the black pajamas and his sidekick for some reason never is. <laughs> you know, and he's got this amulet that he's always wearing. It's uh-huh. like, you know, the symbol of the ninja clan and it's sure. also got some other meaning to him. And somehow that's always that's like visible. Oh wow! You know all the time. And and the thing is, yeah. Lee Van Cleef is a really good actor. Right. Was is now passed on, of course. Sure. But he would, Lee Van Cleef was a really good actor. Um, the Japanese actor that they had acting as the main villain of the whole thing who kept showing up and was his you know arch rival who had killed his wife years ago and all that you know right. the usual kind of tropes. He was. An amazing martial artist, uh-huh. and and if you actually watch ninja movies as mm-hmm. a genre from Japan, he's a legend uh-huh. in that in that genre because he's just that awesome. And so they had all this stuff that could have made it really great, but then they buried it in eighties schlock, right? And had to have the sidekick be this comic relief kind of thing, and just like you don't understand the genre you're trying to adapt, right? And you're fucking it up. Why are you doing this? And it's because it's ninjas. It'll make money. 
Right. Well, and and I would like I to point out that with ninjas, I mean, you also have Eastman and Laird writing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mm-hmm. in the eighties. Yeah. You also have um, Jim Cotta. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten about Jim Cotta. I wish oh. I could forget about it again. Yeah. Um, but you also have you have like everything. Oh, <laughs> you, everything's ninjified. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just remembering it's, the trailers from that fucking yeah. movie. Oh, oh god, yeah. Where he goes around and around on that one pole. Yeah. 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 Uh, so just, bad. Yeah. So, so bad. Okay. Oh, so what was it? Is like the lethality of ninjutsu, but like the beauty of gymnastics yeah, or something. Yeah, it was something like, it was yeah, it was like such oh a good tagline. Yeah, it was awful. But Okay, so you have all of these ninja movies. All this horrible, horrible ninja crap. <laughs> and the thing is, is that uh, this is a lot of people's first and only exposure to Japanese culture, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The ninja, very specifically, is a sneaky, lethal bastard. Yes. It's not virtuous. No. It's not a knight. It's no. not a samurai. No. They're, they're, the way to show that the ninja is like all powerful is he'll kill the samurai in the beginning, and then like a, a telephone worker will be the one that brings down the ninja. But like it's just like it's yeah, war effect is the thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, <clears throat> it's, which it's, by the way is another trope from TV traps. Yeah, you know, the war effect. The war yes, effect. yes. Have somebody show up, kick Worf's ass, that yeah. immediately proves, oh man, we got to be afraid of this guy. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. Worf again is a black character <laughs> so beat up the black kill off the black yeah. character in a horror movie yeah yeah, well, yeah. It, it is that's, it's there yeah it's still, yeah, it, that, it that sucks that it's there that analysis that you made but it's, it's there not, that's yeah okay. yeah not not part of the definition of the trope but right yeah, it's, it's yeah. also that's a sub that's but a also sub they're you know space viking samurai yeah so, so it's, yeah but but anyway so these ninjas are um i just also want to point out here that i've used the word once and every time it comes out of damien's mouth it makes me twitch you you all can't see it but um i'm i'm the kind of pedantic nerd who needs to point out at this point that of course the pearl of viking yes yeah nice (laughs) no god damn it because we've had this argument before I, I just need to get it out of my system that the uh-huh. plural of ninja is ninja because Japanese doesn't have fucking plurals. <laughs> Ninjas should not be a word, even though well, as, it's a, possessive. As, a, as a descriptivist. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you use yeah. an apostrophe. The ninja's greater numbers. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, you know, I just need to point that out and then we can move on. Okay. And I'll, and I'll just have an aneurysm quietly in peace over here. <laughs> so. But you were saying. Yes. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, all these ninjai. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm okay with that one. That, okay. one, that one doesn't bother. Good me to much, know. But but uh, yeah. So just they are. Um, you know, the first exposure that we that we have essentially to, to or the only exposure that we have in pop culture to Japanese culture at that time. Yeah. Is sneaky. Mm-hmm. You should watch out for, and shadowy. you'll never you'll never see him coming. Yeah, shadowy occult. Yeah. Yeah. Never see them coming. Um, don't don't play by the same rules. Right. They have they have a code. It's always a big deal in every ninja yes. movie. They have a code. Yeah. But it's this to us. It's this blue and orange morality. Right. Different code that it's like they're well, they're utterly ruthless, but there are these weird limitations oh, yeah. on their behavior. And and you know what's what, thinking about it. Uh-huh. And, and this is what's great about us talking about this is when I was when I was doing these notes. That didn't. What didn't occur to me is mm-hmm. 
what we're talking about now about the right. ninja's code is in some ways the way Confucianism might look to you know a mainline American Christian is like well you know there are elements of this that make sense to me but right. there's an awful lot of this that's like it's again, really Confucian again the RCA dog yeah really <laughs> really Confucian um, you know that it's like RCA dog wait right you know, <laughs> it's um, Honor thy mother and father. Honor I'm thy, on. I'm, I'm, I'm good. But wait. But wait. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so at the same time, uh-huh. we have garbage ninja movies everywhere. Sure. We have, you know, uh, Shogun showing up on TV. It's interesting to note that this is also the point at which sushi oh. started to really expand onto the American food landscape. I actually wound up getting sucked down a research rabbit hole and spent like three hours looking at the history of sushi in the United States. But it was originally introduced uh, by it's Japanese a lot of raw expats. Analysis. Yeah, yeah. But uh-huh. it was originally introduced by Japanese expats in LA's Little Tokyo in the 1960s, and at first they were mostly serving other Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, Yul Brynner and other other Hollywood people mm-hmm. found it out, and so it became kind of this little Holly, you know, Hollywood sure. insider kind of thing that they did. But it never really expanded very far beyond that. There was also some sushi culture going on in New York. Right. But it, it didn't it didn't explode until the very early eighties, uh, when um, the the FDA mm-hmm. I want to say it was the FDA gave new dietary advice that we needed to eat more fish. Oh. And here sushi is waiting for this moment in the dietary sun being fish being fish and um so all of a sudden people were like well how can i get more fish well okay everybody says this is supposed to be pretty cool i mean it's raw fish that's kind of gross but i'll give it a try sure and like you know a certain a a significant percentage of the population who try sushi are like oh wait this is awesome yeah you know and then there are you know certainly plenty of folks who are like yeah no like the texture is a thing i can't right, do it right. whatever um but so so that all of a sudden brought sushi which is oh. this japanese thing out right. into into the mainstream really kind of kind of for the first time mm-hmm. uh, but it was also probably helped by this weird aspect of, of where our heads were as a society about Japan at the same right. time, because we had this schizophrenic, like, I'm obsessed with them, but I fear them, but, you know, yeah. but I want to be them kind of thing. Did you ever see the movie Parenthood? Yes. Um, Long time ago. Okay, so Steve Martin is yeah, in it. Martin Short, um, I think. Not Martin Short. Not Martin Short. Um, the other guy. <laughs> the other guy. The, the, the other yeah. guy. No, yeah. I, I had the same name. Yeah. Um, Martin... Anyway, so. yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, uh, that character, the 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 guy who played um, uh, Lewis Tully in Ghostbusters, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah, Dana, yeah. it's you. Yeah. You know yeah. that guy. He was a a father who had like so fetishized like raising his daughter to be the corporate killer and blah blah yeah. blah. He was teaching her karate and Japanese mm-hmm. as a plot point in in the movie. Yep. So there's because yeah. Ninja, corporate killer. Right. Yeah, and they and that. that was the point. Gung Ho, the movie. Right. Um, Based, ba- even though Gung know, Ho is a Chinese phrase. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was applied to You're absolutely right. American workers yep. having to adapt to Japanese corporate culture. 
Is this you know, when Electra became a character in Daredevil? Holy shit. I don't know. I don't either. That would be worth looking into. You know, I'd we'll probably find out for the third money. episode. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet probably. Like when he starts fighting the hand yeah, the, or yeah. when, when, when the hand Wolverine goes to Japan yeah. or... Oh, well, I can tell you when Wolverine goes to... This is when... Yeah. This is the time period. That Wolverine's, okay. Wolverine's connection to Kimiko and all that stuff. Okay. That, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Um... And because Sunfire comes into the X Men in '75, yeah. when the X Men reboot essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. as the international team, yeah. Because prior to that, they were just going <clears throat> running on reprints. Like it, it gets canceled in about '70. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they come back, Sunfire is on the team, mm-hmm. a Japanese character. Yeah. So yeah, and that's where mm-hmm. I mean, some of this stuff begins. You know, before the early yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. You the get early '80s is stuff. when it really takes yeah. off. And so now this is also. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same time at which anime first started finding American audiences through redubs, mm, like okay. Robotech, right? Uh, Voltron. Voltron. That was the one uh, I watched. Voltron, Defender of the Universe, and Transor Z. Didn't Kay. ever watch that one. Okay, I only watched it briefly. Mm-hmm. It's a Go Nagai style uh, okay. kind of thing, which means nothing to you. But it, it's it's a more it's a <coughs> It's a much more cartoony okay. animation style uh, than the others. Well, and also, um, um, Brian <laughs> was his name Brian Hama, the guy that uh, wrote the GI Joe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, of Japanese extraction. Yeah, um, and he had huge influence into the, uh, the. Well, his name was at least attached to the cartoon for that, and Ghost yeah. er, and not Ghostbusters, uh, Transformers. Yes. Don't know why I'd blend those two, but yeah. uh, but like, and both of those are very clearly the same style. I mean, they borrowed the same voice actors. Yeah, but well, as far as cartoons it's go, also important to point out mm-hmm. that this is the time period when in GI Joe you have Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, and Storm Shadow, yes, <clears throat> having their actually really remarkably awesome whole conflict backstory, which in many ways um, is very true to. Mm-hmm. Ninja movies as a genre right. from Japan, right? Which is part of the whole martial arts movie whole set of tropes. Which, while <clears throat> true in the comics, mm-hmm. those two never fought in the in the cartoon. No. In the cartoon, Storm Shadow, the 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 very white looking but Japanese ninja mm-hmm. who dressed all in white, most mm-hmm. ineffective ninja there is. <clears throat> yeah. um, he but he, cool and that's he what did. In a oh, absolutely. Medium. Oh, yeah. He always fought against Spirit, the Native American mm-hmm. character. There, there's a lot of trope stuff I can get into there. Ow, ow. Uh, but there's yes, the Native American thing. Spirit, of course, had the uh-huh. eagle that was right. his freedom, uh, familiar. Uh, and what's uh, important to also note there is we have the magical Easterner mm-hmm. because you know there was ninja hoodoo involved. Yep. Going up against the spiritual Native American, we've got you know, God on our side. Yeah, well, well, yeah. you know, I'm saying magic Whatever versus yeah. magic. They're, they they both got loaded with with yeah. you know, magical foreigner tropes at the same time. That's also part of that yeah, yeah, kind of thing. But so, um, and I just need to get nerdy about this for a moment. Do it. That um, you know, when I talk about Robotech Voltron and Transor Z. What I'm talking about are Superdimensional Fortress Macross, Beast King Go Lion, and Mazinger Z, which are the original Japanese oh, okay. series right. uh, that were taken and kind of changed. Things were changed around a little bit. Any overt sex was taken out of them because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a thing in anime. Yeah. 
and and animation here in the West resides in a childhood ghetto. Uh-huh. You know, we're showing this to kids. Um, <clears throat> and it's worth mentioning Speed Racer here also because Speed Racer dates back to the 1960s. I was going to say, yeah. Speed Racer was um, really the first time that anybody in the West took a Japanese mm-hmm. animation of any kind and turned it into anything in the Western media. And there's a whole... there There are books that you could write about what the cultural significance was of Speed Racer and how Speed Racer got changed. Uh-huh. It's it's a remarkable story. But suffice to say, it's the early 80s when a real mass audience starts showing up for this stuff. All right. So, um, and and at this point, mm-hmm. I, I think we're, we're at a place where we can, we can kind of bring it down. Yeah. And we'll pick it up again in another episode because I've gone on about this stuff for a while. But what 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 right now? What are you thinking? So we haven't talked about BattleTech for the entirety of this episode. Of this actually. episode at all? Um, no. And and that's what I I, I <laughs> this is gonna sound terrible. That's what I like about it. Um, but it's <laughs> it's largely because we've really laid the groundwork for um, the 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 zeitgeist. That will inform the thing that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think in the next episode, it'll all really tie together. Yeah. Um, I do find it interesting that we just mentioned Voltron uh, and Robotech. Those and are the Transformers. And the Transformers. Um, those are all giant robots yes. uh, that look vaguely humanoid. Yes. Uh, or incredibly humanoid. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, they're all giant robot types, and so you've got that feeding into the popular culture, mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> and a very specific style. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, to me at least, it'll be interesting to see how uh, that plays out as far as the depiction of the Karita clan yeah. in general. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, for. Uh, uh, Geek History of Time. Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And when you roll those dice, get 20s.